recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, April 27th, 2013. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are presenting Against the Paul Bashers, Part 18. This may be becoming well-worn. However, it has to be completed. And, and it will be completed even beyond our presentation and refutation of Clayton Douglas's Paul bashing material. I have um, I have one listener who did send me links to another a, a neo Paul basher, let's call him that, a more recent Paul basher named um, Scott McQuaid. I'll be listening to those tapes. I, I can't promise when it'll be sometime over the next few months, and and um, seeing what sort of substance, substantive arguments this man may have about the veracity of Paul of Tarsus. I'm sure it's more the same recycled crap. It might be a little craftier, but we shall see. It, it's um, it, it's a damn shame Christians don't put their Bibles into, into not only the proper biblical perspective, but also the proper historical perspective. Right, and Bill, I know you said that we're coming up, you know, on probably 20 installments here, but if the Paul Bash and Clowns are going to take 60 pages to spread lies and it takes us 30 pages I'm sorry, 30 programs to answer those 60 pages, well, then it has to be done. Well, well, absolutely. This is part 18 of our series addressing the Paul Bashing articles of Clayton Douglas. Last week, we finished off our dissection of Clayton Douglas's long article, The Seduction, Judeo-Churchianity, or, I'm sorry, Judeo-Christianity or Pauline Christianity, and um, which Douglas had published in December 2003, here we shall move on to address Douglas's second Paul bashing article entitled Saul of Tarsus and His Doctrine of Lawlessness, which he published in January 2004 in that same magazine. While many of the arguments Douglas makes in the second article are just repackaged from his first article, he does add new material and raise some new issues. The material being presented here tonight first appeared in Clifton Emmerheiser's Watchman Teaching Letters, numbered 102 and 103, which were published in October and November of 2006. Of course, this material also appears at Christogenia.org as part of a lengthy compilation of all of those teaching letters entitled William Fink versus the Paul Bashers. This is, um, I meant to, to, to add at the end of last week's program that a couple of Clifton's readers, when we were publishing this series, whined that they were tired of the he said, we said disputation, which is found in, in our expositions, such as these presentations of, of the defense of Paul, and then some other things that we've published at, over the years. And, and I must say to this that how can one judge the merits of these arguments unless one has the opportunity to see both sides of the issues being addressed? In, in the last um, perhaps 14 or 15 installments of this series against the Paul Bashers, taken from Clifton's Watchman's teaching letters, which, which I had written for him in, in, um, in this, at, at this time in, on this subject, 
what we've seen Douglas's what we've presented every word of Douglas's Paul bashing article of his first Paul bashing article, which he published in December um, of, of 2003, I think it was. And, and we've what we have addressed practically. I, I mean, there may have been some minor points here and there that we glossed over, but we've addressed practically every point that he made. Well, not to um, divert or bring other clowns out there into this, but Douglas was publishing Paul Bashing articles under his own name in 2003 openly, and Eli James still sought him out to work with him. Well, well right. Well, without addressing his Paul Bashing. I had to address, um, at, at that time that Eli James had brought Clayton Douglas uh, on board into his Christian identity ministry, and, and let me say that I did I did um, debate with Douglas immediately when I saw him over this Paul Bashing article in Eli's forums. And Eli had never addressed that, had never addressed Douglas's Paul Bashing before bringing him on board to write a book with him and, and, and trying to bring him in to be a part of Eli's Christian identity ministry. And I confronted Douglas immediately. And Douglas offered to do a, pro to do a program with me on Blog Talk Radio, on his program, and, and I did. I did two programs with Clayton Douglas, and never once that did did he um, offer any real substantive confrontation over this Paul bashing article. He, he basically um, relented. He, he um, did like a dog would do and roll over and licked his nuts. I, I hate to use such a such a terrible <laughs> analogy, but that's exactly what he did. And and he didn't bring any substantive arguments to the table on those two interviews. Those two interviews are still posted on ChrisDeGenia.org. I think Douglas is um, – he really just didn't know what to ask me or how to argue. And that's when I realized and, and that's when I began to, to, to discover that Douglas wasn't actually the author of these articles. He published them in his own name but somebody else had written them. That's why Douglas couldn't broach this topic when, with me when I was on his program on two occasions. He couldn't broach the topic with me because he doesn't know the material. He took somebody else's material and published it in his own name. Well, then that makes him a clown. Well, well yes, it, it does. He, he published this as if he was the author that these two articles, and, and he didn't write them, and he doesn't know the first thing about the Bible or Paul of Tarsus. Oh. But me, not knowing Douglas until that time, until I actually went on the air with him, it, it, I had no idea that, that, that he was so damned ignorant. Well, he's also arrogant, too. I mean, if you wrote a master's thesis for me in Greek history and culture, and I went to defend it before a group of professors, and I couldn't defend it because I didn't write it, I'd be pretty arrogant to think that I could fool them into not realizing that it's not my work. So that was a gutsy move, or maybe he just didn't respect you at all, and he thought you were a clown who wouldn't you know, call him on it, or since you were friends with Eli, you wouldn't hold his hand at a burner on all of his stupid remarks. Well, well, you know, when, during, during my time with Eli James, I constantly affronted people that, that were um, friends of Eli or supporters of Eli that, or, or were close to Eli who I disagreed with. 
I, I had no no problem with, with um, confronting Russell Walker. Um, what what's that 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 that, that Marxist Arlene Johnson? Um, all these people in in Eli James's circle who who were really that they claim to be Christian identity and, and they're anything but that they're Bible bashers, they're Paul bashers, they're Marxists. That that they're that they're uh, I mean, Clayton Douglas is just a, a pot-headed biker hippie who who who, who tried to um, use Christian identity to sell books, ostensibly. So, so that that that's the the people that attach themselves to Eli James, and Eli James brings him, brings into his own circle John Waterman, who's really he's not a Christian at all; he's a New Age freak. He's always talking about the next impending disaster and Eli just helps him do that and, and goes along with it and, and feeds the, the the fear of all these um, half-established right-wing listeners that these people that know something's wrong but they don't understand what it is and, and um, that, that they a lot of these um, so-called truth broadcasters and, and I spoke about this last night with, with um Mike Delaney, but from a totally different angle, criticizing them from a totally different perspective. But a lot of them simply, and, and Republic Radio is great for this, they love to keep people in a state of fear so that they could sell them survival products and seeds and, and, and weapons and stuff like that. And, and that, that's, that their programming is based around that. A, a lot of their programming is based around that, and it's geared for their advertisers. It's profit motive. Well, well not, right. And, they're not and, really interested in building you up as a person spiritually. They just want to sell you a bunch of crap that you may or may not need, and I'm sure you can benefit from having the survival food if there's an earthquake, a tornado, but maybe you don't need four years' worth and you don't need a fallout shelter in the Ozarks. Right. Well, well Eli James falls into that category, and that's why he can work with Clayton Douglas, with John Waterman, and, and with a lot of other turkeys that, that um, basically know nothing about the Bible, but like to use it as part of their vehicle that, that, that's, that, that promotes, promotes a culture of fear so that they can sell people gold and, and seeds and, and, um, and, and bullets, basically. That's what it boils down to. And, and MREs and whatever Republic Radio hawks. And, you know, they're keeping them constantly afraid so there's sort of an overload. You know, it's the boy who cried wolf syndrome. If every month you tell the people that the trains are going to roll, you're heading to the FEMA camps, you know, by the end of the month, oh, in four weeks Obama's declaring martial law, and in six weeks they're going to start killing people, they're going to round up patriots. And if you hear that every single month or every single season, spring, summer, autumn, you hear it again and again and again over the years, you become numb, you become anesthetized. It fails well, to oh, absolutely. But but it's it's always you know every disaster that comes and goes. Nibiru is the good one. Now now somebody a, a listener who who's not exactly a um, a supporter of my work. He's um he's re- really just a, a thorn in in my pinky. He, he uh, in my pinky toe. He's not a thorn in my side. He's he's not important enough to be that. He, he um and, and certainly not smart enough. But but he had written me a, a pretty um, critical letter about Eli being back on the Nibiru bandwagon last week on John Waterman's program. 
and that's you know this that this that this that this trick already failed three or four times, right? I mean, it was the common Ellenin and John Waterman and Eli James were announcing a year ago that the common Ellenin, or maybe it was a year and a half ago, that that was Nibiru and that was going to create major havoc, and and he had his hideout in Southern Illinois already. And it's the guilty men in the Bible who want to crawl into the holes of the rocks, right? And he had his hideout already, his refuge, and they were hawking this idea that Elenin was going to cause massive destruction on the earth, and if you weren't prepared, you weren't going to make it through, you better go buy some gold and some seeds. And as Mona just said in the Christoginia chat, she said that RBN is now hawking clean air. And, and as a, I guess that was a joke, but I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> no, at one point they would throw their gold into the streets. Well, well, that's what the scripture says. I mean, when Babylon falls, your gold isn't going to do you a damn bit of good. Right, and we're told that you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And it seems we've got a, a, a clique of people out there, and the end is just next month. It's just four months away. It's 2012 December. The the end is always just around the corner, and we're told the end is not yet. And they want to say the end is the end is always it's on the horizon. It's always imminent. Well, well, right. And those people are are, are capitalizing on keeping the sheep in a state of fear, and also at the same time, um, distracting the sheep from the real problems and not offering any real solutions. Right. I mean, gold, buying gold and and seeds, okay, well, we all need seeds, there's no doubt. But we don't need them because the end of the world is tomorrow. You know, we may need seeds for for next year's garden, but we don't need them because um, we'll starve to death next month. Now, it's always good to hedge your bets, but if you're so busy preparing for the end of the world, you're not spreading the word, you're not feeding the sheep, you're not working in ministry, you're not contending for the faith, then you're missing the mark. Well, well absolutely. And keeping people in a state of fear, well, when the Bible tells us to have no fear. Right. The so, scripture that you just quoted tells us, don't be concerned. And these people are professional fear mongers and panic inducers. Well, well, because that's what drives their advertising. And that's what keeps people going to their advertisers. It's a gimmick. It's a game. It's a Jew hat trick. It, it, it's uh, I don't know. It, it's um. You, you you can't get anything done at all on RBN because right now I mean it, just in the few minutes we've been talking there would have been four minutes of commercials we would have been interrupted we'd lose our train of thought the audience loses track their attention slips we'd have to repeat everything multiple times to get it through to them. Well, well, right. I've been on RBN a few times and, and I've also. Oracle Broadcasting, I, I think, seems to be a little better. I, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe it's just the host. But, but um, they also have a lot of advertising. I've been on there a few times. I've been on RBN a few times. But my experiences have not been pleasant because the, the material that I present it is deep, and, and I need 10, 10 minutes, sometimes 15 minutes, just to um, present enough foreground information to get my point across uh, or back information to get my point across, and and it's difficult to do when you're interrupted every three or four minutes with, with commercials, advertising, five minutes, whatever, what, whatever the cycle is, the 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 commercials are, it's too much. It, right, it's, and the commercials are telling people the world's ending. So if they were listening to what you were saying, now all of a sudden the world's ending. So we should stop paying attention to what Bill just said. And oh my God, honey, the world's ending. 
right. It's horrible. It's a horrible venue. It's a horrible venue for the dissemination of any real substantial information. I can't do it. Well, well, right. They've taken the paradigm from from commercial Jew radio and put it on the Internet. That's basically what they've done. They've taken a Jew paradigm from AM, FM radio, from Art Bell, and they put it on the Internet. And Art Bell is all, you know, George Norrie, Coast to Coast AM, programs like that, that they've taken their advertising patterns and put them on the Internet. And and all that's geared towards one thing, entertainment. You can't present any valuable information, any historical or biblical expositions or or anything of substance. You can't present it on, on Republic Radio. It's a joke. It can't be done with all those interruptions. It just can't. So, so that's that. That's the way that works. Right, and genuine patriots aren't going to be on Republic anyway. They're not welcome. Well, well, right. I I would never touch Republic Radio. I would never have a program on Republic Radio. I don't care how many listeners it might get. And, and Republic Radio doesn't get all that many listeners. Gets all the the guys that get all the listeners. Uh, I mean, uh, are, are the real? Um, I, I don't even want to call them halfway houses to the truth. The, the real shills are, are guys like um, Alex Jones, and, and he gets all the listeners on the internet. I, I mean, you could go to Shoutcast. Yeah, you could go to Shoutcast.com and, and look up any Shoutcast station and see how many listeners they have at any given time. And actually, two Christogenia streams, two of my five streams are registered, are registered publicly, and you could go see how many shoutcasts, how many listeners I get on those two streams at any given time. And during a program here, it's probably 8, 10, 12. But, but other than that, when I'm playing reruns, it's probably 1, 2, 3. That's the way it is. But, well, Alex Jones might have 8,000 listeners. He gets all the listeners. Well, actually, uh, at, at, at any given you know moment on his program, he has at least 300,000 live listeners. Well, well 300,000 is probably a, a, an overstatement because that's not what I get from Shoutcast. I've checked them on Shoutcast. Uh, I've seen them. Global listeners? Well, 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 well that's his, Shout, his Shoutcast servers. I don't know if he has any out, other outlets. I don't know if he has any mainstream. Well, like Republic Radio has been, simulca- has been able to simulcast, I believe, on on certain AM or FM stations around the country. Right. And, you know, Jones has 121 million views on his YouTube channel, where if we had a YouTube channel, it'd be like that one guy who put up all the Hitler speeches. We wouldn't get 121 million views. We'd get shut down in four months. Well, well, right. A lot of my podcasts, a lot of our podcasts are on YouTube, and and they get some time. And and we don't, I don't put them there. Other people put them there. I, I don't, I've never put, a, um, I, I have. I have a YouTube channel, and it has two or three Christogenia introductory videos on it that, that other people made for me, and that's it. I never put anything on it. And I have a TrueTube channel with one video that I put on it for, for Mike Delaney, and it, it's just a series of still pictures with, with one of my podcasts. But, but um, so, so I really don't do video, but other people have taken our podcasts, my podcast, and, and put them on, on um, YouTube, and, and they've gotten in the hundreds of, of, of listens, but no, they'll never be popular. Right, they're not going to get millions of views. Right. 
and I don't expect them to. And, and if they did get millions of views, I, I, I'd probably think that it's because the mainstream media is ridiculing them and people want to see what people are curious as to what they're doing. That, oh. nah, I never expect to get that kind of attention. The mainstream media is not going to ridicule the Weeby series because that would draw attention to it. Well, well right. And, and I think that, um, I, I really think that I'm not ever going to be criticized by the ADL or the Southern Poverty Law Center because they really only want to criticize people that they don't feel are, are much of a threat. I might be wrong about that. That they, If you look at the identity list, you'll see Jim Wickstrom there, and and Jim might, might put on some good presentations now and then, but he's a ranter. He's not really a scholar. You'll see Pete Peters and, and Dave Barley, and I think they list – Pete Peters and Dave Barley and, and people like that because that's where they want to send those who are curious about Christian identity. Right, so the fence-sitting white nationalist reads about these people or maybe just somebody who's heard about British Israelism and he says, gee, Dave Barley, what does he teach? I'll go out to Google and here and see if I can find his webpage. Right. Where I'm sure the ADL has seen your page, so they probably saved the whole page, didn't they? They saved your whole site. Well, I, I told you before, somebody earned their master's thesis writing about Christogenia. Well, well, yes, that that that's that that's true. That, so that's the, the left is very aware of your existence. Well, well, at least in in some respects. All right, well, we're kind of getting off track here, but I, I think we've we've covered the clowns. You know, we've, we've said some things that had to be said. Well, well, right, we're definitely off track. This is this conversation is more like an, an, an extension of the one I had with Mike Delaney last night, <laughs> the racist right. And there's so much ground we could have covered, but, but I thought an, an hour and a half was sufficient but for the program, in, in the circumstances, it, it was just basically an, an, an off-the-cuff program for the most part, except for my right. presentation and my essay. That the, um, I mean, there's a lot of people I didn't get to discuss that I wanted to, like Jeff Rance and, and Alex Jones and, and many others. That um, I mean, you could go on and on forever. If you're not racist, you're not right. That's the bottom line. That's, if, you, if you want to be a conservative, you have to conserve. You have to seek to conserve the the um, the substance of the nation of the republic and not the form of the republic. Right, not the institutions. We're conserving our blood. We're not here to conserve the physical territory and the geographic boundaries so we can pass it along to a new mestizo race. Only the only the peoples that that created the, the institutions and, and and the republic can truly maintain it and and the society. Civilization is a racial construct. Right. Well, I was pondering on this earlier that all the other peoples of the world have had thousands of years to conceive of the idea of a republic or a democracy or a democratic republic or some sort of form of government that the Athenians, the, maybe even the Spartans, the Romans would recognize, the Anglo-Saxons would recognize, we would recognize, and they've never done it. So it's it's very foolish and arrogant to think that we can just move them here, hand them a piece of paper that says they're now a citizen just like us, and they're going to merge effortlessly. 
into our society and become a productive member of our republic when their race never conceived of the idea of a republic. It, it's simple. Bring enough of them over here and the republic dies. Well, well, it will absolutely. There's no doubt. Wherever you bring Africa, wherever you bring Africans, the result is Africa. Last night I stated clearly that wherever you bring Jews, the result is Sodom and Gomorrah. Wherever you're going to bring Mexicans, the result's going to be very much like Mexico. And there are plenty of people out there, even it seems an identity, who don't seem to have too big of a problem with that because they think we're supposed to rule over everybody else and it's going to be one big kumbaya, we'll, we'll hold hands and they'll, they'll acknowledge we're great. And Paul Bashing goes right to the heart of that, doesn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, anybody in identity who's a Paul Basher is probably a, a crypto-universalist waiting to get rid of Paul so they can come out of the universal closet. Well, well, I think it's Paul Bashing is a double-edged sword. It's the crypto-universalists and, and the crypto-closet queens and, and like, Jacqueline, like um, John Spong, right? Right. He, he was basically a crypto-fag. That the um, those people want to get rid of Paul, and they they play on it. It seems that that's where Paul bashing began. It is with those people that the crypto Jews, the the crypto sexual deviants, that the um, Jacqueline Prince, um, W. G. Finley, John Spong. Well, well, those people want to get rid of Paul that they've taken advantage of, of writers like Nietzsche and, and um, some of the Fabian socialists, George Bernard Shaw. They've taken advantage of their writings because those people are anti-Christians in the first place, right? right? Well, and George Bernard Shaw. Well, well, they've taken advantage of their writings and leveraged their writings in order to discredit Paul of Tarsus. Their agenda is a Jewish agenda and a sexual deviant agenda. And some Christian patriots, or, or, or at least um, marginal patriots like Clayton Douglas, some of those people have, have used the, these, um, the, the writings, the discreditations, the, the, the discrediting of Paul by these um, Jews and sexual deviants as a, a wedge against Paul of Tarsus and, and um, in order to incite those who feel that Paul's responsible for universalism. So, so it's the, the some some of the, um, the the patriotic Christians who are anti-universalist are using the sexual the words of these sexual deviants and Jews against Paul of Tarsus because they don't like Paul for his universalism. So, so it's a two-edged sword. You know, I don't think Nietzsche ever claimed to be a Christian theologian or ever put himself forward as a scholar on Christianity. So if, if John Spong and, and, and the others like him, if they consider themselves serious Christian scholars and theologians or pastors and bishops, then it, it begs the question, why are they referring to self-avowed atheists? And people who are by no by no means, by no standards, or individuals like Nietzsche and George Bernard Shaw, they're they're not Christian scholars. They're not even laymen. It's the agenda. That's the only reason somebody would 
site, Jewish Magician number one, Jewish Magician number two, Yakum Prince. Well, well, absolutely. There's absolutely an agenda. That there's no doubt. But we don't need a Jewish commentary on the Bible. In fact, there basically is one. It's called the Talmud. Absolutely. Okay, we could open up with um, Douglas's bad translation of 2 Corinthians 12, 16. I, I mean, it's the King James Version's bad translation, and, and right. we'll discuss that, uh, of 2 Corinthians 12, 16. And, and some of his statements here are, are also grossly rep- misrepresentative of Paul's ministry. All right. Clay Douglas states, But granting that myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Saul of Tarsus, 2 Corinthians 12, 16. Tornado, tornado, no. An intensely destructive advancing whirlwind formed from strongly turning currents. Paul, Saul of Tarsus was a tornado. Mayhem, disorder, destruction. Since Paul's announcement, he'd been visited by Jesus Christ, Emmanuel Esu, I guess the other author's back in the room now. Nothing would ever be the same again. Let's revisit Pauline Christianity, shall we? Well, which chapter shall we revisit? Shall we jump to the one where he's disguised himself and he's following all the disciples around? He's with an earshot of Jesus, and he's a Roman deserter from a legion, and then he introduces himself, and no one recognizes him. Hey, you're the guy that's been stalking us for four years. Right. That's incredible, right, or for 14. Uh, okay, yeah, you know, this, is, um, this isn't the King James translation. I, I, I don't know why I thought it was. But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. And, and that's a, attributed to Paul at 2 Corinthians twelve, sixteen. The, the King James Version... The, the King James Version is, but be it so, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. And, and that's horrible, too. The Christogonian New Testament, I will read. But it is that I have not imposed on you. Otherwise, being villainous, I have taken you with guile. Paul saying, basically, that if he had imposed on, on, on the Corinthians, that he was being deceitful with them. But since he did not impose on the Corinthians, he was not being deceitful with them. Paul saying the opposite that, that Clayton Douglas imagines Paul to be saying. He's also saying the opposite that the King James translated. He's actually saying the opposite from what the King James translation might um, lend one to believe that he's saying. And Douglas discusses this translation later on in in this presentation. It's coming soon, and and I'll address it at length there. It's, um, you know, Paul's blaming Paul, Douglas is blaming Paul of Tarsus. He's accusing Paul of Tarsus as he defines the word tornado, right, and, and, and says that Paul of Tarsus was a tornado, that Paul of Tarsus caused mayhem and disorder and destruction. And, and as you said, it's another facet of Douglas's novel. And, and basically, that, that's what it is. When we read the accounts in the book of Acts surrounding the ministry of Paul of Tarsus, whenever 
mayhem and disorder encompassed Paul, it's caused by the, by the unbelieving Jews who are trying to suppress his gospel. It's well, not being caused by Christians who are opposed to Paul. It's not being caused by Christians at all. It, it's not like Paul's infiltrated Christianity and Christians are opposing Paul. That's not true. In the book of Acts, it's clearly illustrated that it's always the apostate Edomite Jews, the enemies of Christ, the persecutors of Christians everywhere who, is, who, who are causing the mayhem and disorder surrounding Paul's ministry. So, so Douglas is misrepresenting the history outlaid in the book, out, laid out in the book of Acts. If I'm not mistaken, what was it, 40 Jews took an oath that they would take neither food nor drink until Paul was dead, and I'm sure they violated that oath, but they followed through and made sure he died. Well, well, right, that's one instance, right, that, that's, um, that, that's in Acts chapters 26, 27, 28, that there's... Um, there's the instance in Thessalonica, I think it's in Acts chapter 17 or 18, where um, certain disbelieving Judeans, and they're, they're Edomite Jews, they're the agitators, they're the troublemakers, went and hired ruffians from the market to assault Paul of Tarsus. And that's the, t- that, that's the typical Jewish modus, modus operandi. Don't get your own hands dirty. Go hire some dirt bags to do your dirty work for you. That, that's exactly what they did. That's, that, that's the, what we see. That's the pattern in the book of Acts. This is an age-old technique then. You know, if, if there's some Jew who sells windows, he pays kids from the neighborhood thugs to break all the windows. And if there's some Jew that wants a meeting interrupted or disrupted, he pays a bunch of thugs, drunks, and dope users to go wreck up the meeting hall. Well, well right, but the, the, the real age-old Jewish method here is, is to take someone who, who's simply speaking the truth and, and um, have him assaulted in, a, in, in an uproar, in a riot, in, in some sort of civil disorder, and then blame the speaker for the, for, for the trouble. Right. Oh, he caused a riot. His words were inflammatory. Right. And, and the Jews do that all the time. They do it to this day. Well, if the speaker is to blame because his words are inflammatory and he offended the sensibilities of the audience, when the Jews refer to Jesus as the son of a whore, does that mean a Christian audience is now justified in stringing them up because they've inflamed their sensibilities? Well, well, no, because that's their freedom of speech, and, and he was only offering a valid alternative historical perspective. Ah. In other words, Jews speak. Yes. Double, du- double speak. They're, they're the most hypocritical people. That, that they're the authors of hip- hypocrisy in, in all history. That throughout all history, the Jew and, and his predecessors, who weren't always called Jews, are the authors of hypocrisy. The Edomite Jew propensity for rioting is fully evident in the pages of Josephus' wars. It's also evident in, in early Christian writings, such as those of Tertullian, who tells us that the Jews were behind the persecution of early Christians. And, and, and so in, in Christian writings and in Judean writings, because Josephus wasn't what we would call a Jew today, what we see the same pattern of behavior attributed to the, to the Jews that we see in the book of Acts, 
where Paul was their victim. He was not the instigator. He was simply spreading the gospel. A man had a right. You know, it, it was actually quite common in the ancient Greek world for, for um, philosophers to travel from school to school and spread their philosophy and, and present the basis of their philosophy. Greece was um, what was very well populated with schools of philosophy. We see Paul of Tarsus visit and, and, and um, make his presentations of the gospel at various schools of philosophy right in the book of Acts. Not only, in, not only in synagogues of the Judeans, but also in Greek schools of philosophy. So, so this was common. It, it was common. Um, the Platonists did it. The Epicureans did it. The Gnostics did it. The Stoics did it. All of these Greek schools had philosophers who, who, who expounded on, on their philosophies in these schools. It, it was very common. Well, well, Paul's philosophy was the gospel of Christ. And he also, likewise, spread that philosophy in the schools, in, in the Greek schools. So the Jews, they're, they're not assaulting the Epicureans and the Gnostics and the Platonists and, and, and the followers of Aristotle or, or, or whatever. They're, they're not the, 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 um, the Stoics and people like that. And there were, I mean, every learned Greek professed one philosophy or another. And, and studied it, and they debated them in, in these schools, and, and it, it, was, it was like sport in ancient Greece. And, and um, Paul was being assaulted. Paul was the one being um, chased down and assaulted and, and persecuted, and it wasn't Christians doing it. It was Jews doing it. It, it wasn't um, pagan Greek philosophers doing it, sects doing it. It was Jews doing it. And we see that pattern if we read the pages of Josephus's wars, if we read the pages of Tertullian's apology, we see these men profess the same pattern of behavior amongst the Jews that the Book of Acts professes. Jews have, um, they follow that same pattern of behavior today that they continually incite riots in Christian nations. They've done it all through history. The Bolshevik Revolution was basically a Jewish riot on a large scale. The 1960s in America, the streets of America, saw, saw, saw endless Jewish riots. Yet they're all idolized today. Well, well, yes, those Jews are idolized today but because the Jews are the political victors. That, that those riots gained them political victory in American society. Oh, the and and today, today, those, today, those Jew bastards rule over both major American political parties, the Democrat and the Republican. In, in the Republican Party, they're called neocons. They're all a bunch of ex-Jewish Bolsheviks and, and hippies. Well, I don't think we should call them ex-Bolsheviks. Well, well, you're right. I'm sorry. They're not. That that they're ex. They, they decided to put on a different uniform. Yes, they did. And in the Democratic Party, we just call them Democrats. Well, 
Well, well, yeah, yeah. You look at the patterns of behavior at, at, of certain people in history, and and it's absolutely evident who is persecuting Paul of Tarsus. There, there should be no doubt. The tree is known by its fruit. And again, that one question that none of them can ever come up with an answer for. If all these people wanted Paul dead, why didn't they just go to the nearest Roman officer and say, that man there is a deserter from the Legion, and then the Roman military would take care of him? Douglas will never address that that issue, will he? Bye. Reference 52? Well, well, yeah, the, this, the, the opening paragraphs of this reference 52, I, I believe, include a lot of notes from from Clifton himself. Clay Douglas states, Saul of Tarsus and his doctrine of lawlessness. Putting out our first investigative piece entitled The Seduction, Pauline Christianity, we thought we'd heard it all. I I thought I'd heard it all, too, when they said he was a deserter from a Roman legion. And then they invented um, Judas Iscariot. Yeah, yeah, they split Judas Iscariot into two personalities and and gave him two different lives. I I thought I'd heard it all at that point. But we had a good Judas and a bad Judas, right? We were caught flat-footed, though, by the venomously intense feelings of some who were made furious because we simply questioned Paul's story and Paul's motives. So what part of his story did they question? Paul said, I'm an apostle of Jesus, and they said, oh, well, we think you're a deserter from a Roman legion. There's no basis for any of the questions. They're just throwing everything in the kitchen sink at him, and they're hoping if they throw 100 false accusations, two or three will stick. Or at least people will buy two or three of them. It's textbook Jewry. You accuse someone of so many things, eventually people will accept one or two of those false accusations and he'll be running around trying to put the fires out. Right. The, the first sentence of, the, of this um, next paragraph is Clifton's note. Clifton said that Clay Douglas's Free American Radio program dared, also dared to start a dialogue regarding Pauline Judeo-Christianity. And Douglas says, we, Douglas says, we carefully listened to the callers who responded in support of Paul and Saul. Well, their main argument was that no matter what, Paul was anointed. No matter that Paul, Saul, tortured and murdered hundreds, if not thousands of innocent people, anointed. No matter that Paul was a liar, anointed. No matter that Paul, Saul, effectively shut down God's laws in the Old Testament, anointed. Well, aren't these laws that these people hate anyway because they want to extend the covenant to everybody? So what what is They want to accept covenant to everybody, and they want to swap wives with their neighbor. So, uh, I mean, what the hell? So they should be in favor, then, of all these laws going away. Right. And and people like John Spong, well, Douglas quotes John Spong at length. John Spong wants to, um, he, he, he wants to marry Adam and Steve, right? Literally, he wants to marry both of them. He doesn't just want to perform the ceremony. He wants both of them. <laughs> right. No matter that Paul Saul rendered of no effect Jesus Emmanuel's teachings. Okay, so he's Jesus again instead of Esu Emmanuel. Welcome to the third Jew. Anointed. Ha, anointed is one of the words that, anointed is one of those words that bugs me. 
you know, words or phrases that can effectively shut down a fruitful conversation, just like that dreaded term, anti-Semite. We also noticed that people who had been asked to let us reason together have no interest in reason whatsoever. So, in other words, they're not interested in this comic book and this novel. Their voices would get shrill, brittle, and, well, just plain mean and nasty. Well, if you call Paul of, of um, Tarsus, if you call him a Roman deserter, and I hold your hand at a burner and say, prove it, and you don't offer any proof other than sophistry and crap and more slander, my voice is going to get a bit mean. If we have an academic discussion and I cite an encyclopedia and you cite a comic book, it's going to get pretty heated pretty soon when I say your source isn't valid and you have to stick to that source because it's all you have. The emails we received pursuant to our publishing of the seduction held the same shrill tone. Doggone it, we think we've struck a nerve. Well, all their sources are communists, socialists, humanists, atheists, homosexuals, and Jewish magicians. So I, I would hope they've struck a nerve. And since the behavioral trait of resistance runs strong in our bloodline, their bloodline's probably not our bloodline, though, we will continue. May we encourage anyone who has a valid argument in this matter, rather than foul protests that have no point at all, to send them along. Let's try to get to the meat of the matter and stay tuned to Clay Douglas' Free American Radio Program for more dialogue on this important topic and others. He should have ended it with stay tuned, you know, same bat time, same bat channel. Well, well, absolutely. Yeah, you know, Clayton Douglas, we, we see that he encourages dialogue on this important topic, but evidently hasn't had or, or never had any any replies which he, which he felt were worthy, right? At, at the end of his first article, Douglas did print one short response from a teenager, and, and, and we didn't reproduce it, but, but that's all he printed. Douglas... Um, his attacks on Paul in the first article were quite broad and, and that they couldn't be answered properly in a limited talk radio call-in format. You can't, you know, those, those broad responses, you have to choose out specific points and deal with them one at a time, as we've done throughout this series. And we took 18 or 14 installments here of this program to address Clayton Douglas's first Paul bashing article. It, it's nothing that can be done if you want to do it right. It can't be done on Republic Radio five minutes at a time with commercials in between, right? It, it just can't be done that way. Blog Talk Radio, um, Clayton Douglas has commercials on his radio programs there, perhaps not as many as Republic, but, but it's still a difficult format to, to go into anything in, in great depth. Now, neither can Douglas's sweeping accusations be answered by a neophyte or, or anyone who's only a casual reader of Scripture. Here we spent, in, in, this, in, in the original publication here, to this point, in Clifton's original publication, I added them up, that this was nearly 54,000 words to the end of um, Teaching Letter 102. I think it started at 88. It was like 54,000 words reproducing Douglas's arguments and answering them. I think it started, the Douglas section started in 92 or 93. It was 10, 10 of, or 12 of Clifton's teaching letters 
54,000 words. So, so you can't, you know, it, it's, it, it's pretty deep and it has to be addressed at length. It, it's hard to do in five-minute sound bites. It can't be done in five-minute sound bites, and, and especially by neophytes. Yet you have to be a deep reader of, of Scripture, even to be... Some of these arguments which Douglas has made are ridiculous, and, and others are, are more cunningly contrived, and, and they have to be answered, and, and they can't be answered in, in, in five minutes, such as his disputations on the law and things like that. Well, we can move on to reference 53A. Clay Douglas states, Imagine Paul living today and put yourselves in the shoes of the people who were victimized by him. So I, I need to pretend I'm a Jew then, right? Because Paul's preaching against me and it's a form of persecution and I'm a victim. Oy vey. Well, well, right. He called you contrary to all men. Imagine yourself genuinely obeying Jesus, striving to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, and be like their teacher so that you can do greater works than these, thus living your life for God. Suddenly a Bolshevik breaks into your home and assaults you. Gags and binds you, your spouse and your children. He says he's going to imprison you because you follow a man preaching the kingdom of heaven on earth. Here and now, as soon as we stand up against the forces of physical and spiritual oppression and take hold of the reins of our destiny. Jesus said that, that we could take hold of the reins of our destiny. Well, he actually said just the opposite, that, that um, basically he holds the reins of our destiny, right? As, as, as Peter called Christ the captain of our souls, right? And, and Graber says we are captains of our souls. Right. That's, so, so Douglas is adopting the same humanist position that Graber had. Right, and if we hold the reins of our own destiny and we can solve everything, then why did Jesus even have to come to begin with? Well, well absolutely. So, so the, the author, not this really isn't Douglas, right? Whoever wrote this, whoever wrote this must have been reading the same humanist material that, that Graeber had studied. Right, you know, um, I consider myself something of a scholar here, and, you know, I've, I've read the entire New Testament, and I just... I've never come across the spot where Jesus said, you hold the reins of your own destiny. Maybe we're not reading the same New Testament here. Douglas has his own version approved by the rabbis, and I have a different version. While holding you hostage on behalf of the Antichrist state and their other infiltrators in your religious community, he proceeds to ransack your house and steals everything of material value that he and his henchmen can haul off. Then he takes you and your family outside so you can watch while he burns down your home. Thereafter, he hauls you and your family off to prison. Many of your closest friends are in prison there under the same conditions and by the same adversary. In addition, you have no idea of the whereabouts or condition of your children. Your spouse and some of your friends and neighbors are executed. You, however, miraculously escape from prison. Well, th th this is all just a novel. Well, well, yes, it's all just a novel. And, and we're, we're, we're missing the Jewish superhero who saves the day and defeats the evil Nazis. He, he, he destroys an entire SS Panzer division single-handedly with the help of only a Jewish child. Well, well here, here Douglas further develops the plot to his novel, and, and this part of it was already addressed. He, he already, he, he, we already addressed this in, in one of the opening segments of this series addressing Douglas's articles. And, and um, 
Paul's initial persecution of Christians before he himself saw the light and, and was converted is discussed at, at, at length in Acts chapters 8 and 9, and it's recapitulated in, in Acts um, chapter 22, chapter 26, and, and Galatians chapter 1. Now, now, these biblical accounts make no mention of children being bound or gagged, burning of houses, ransacking and pillaging, or, or any of these other brutal injustices. Clayton Douglas is just, he, he's sounding here like a Jewish storyteller, right? Uh, I mean, make a little Zycom be to kill the rice and, lice and suddenly you've been blamed for gassing eight million, six million people to death. I think it was originally 14 million, right? Well, you know, in a, in a couple of years, it'll be 20 million. I mean, it's just a number. Well, this this is like a Jewish embellishment. It, it's typical of of, of um, Jewish Jewish thought and and practice to to extrapolate a story like this out of um, nothing. What 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 may have been a, a simple um, inquisition, and they they've turned it into a slashing and burning and and murdering of innocents, and, and uh, I'm not saying what Paul of Tarsus originally did was right. How, however, he thought he was doing the right thing. Just like today, the, those cops in Boston last week, don't you think those individual cops, if you pulled them aside and questioned them, would tell you that they thought they were doing the right thing? I would imagine <laughs> so, otherwise they wouldn't have done it. Well, well right. We know that they're tyrants, we understand the tyrannical nature, nature of, of our government, the tyranny that it's become. But these individual cops, well, well, I'm sure they're all convinced they were doing the right thing. Right. You mean door the door, martial law, shut the city down? Right, exactly. They, I would bet you pull 100 of those cops aside and question them about their actions, their, their involvement, in these police actions in Boston, and they'll they'll honestly believe, and they might be good people as individuals, honestly believing that they were doing the right thing right. because because that's the way they've been educated. Right, and even if say you know um, ninety of them you know don't even question it at all, ten feel that it was a a horrible thing that they had to shut down the city, but drastic times call for drastic measures, and probably yeah, none of them are going to... Whatever reason, that's the way they've been educated. They, as individuals, may not be bad people, and they would would profess or, or assert that they were doing the right thing. Right, but once they put on that badge and that uniform at the start of the day, they fall into that role. Well, well right, and, and I've been there, and, and you do think that you're doing the right thing. That's that. That's the way it is. That that's the education you have at the time, and you base your actions, your vocational choices on that education. Right. They well, think they're doing right. They think they're doing good. They think they're defending their nation. They think they're defending their city, and, and they're not. They're 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 tyrannizing it, but they don't see it that way. Seldom will hundreds of thousands of people come together to rally for an evil cause. I mean, when you when you want the um the British Army to help sell opium in China and open the gateway for the opium merchants. The government can't tell the British people, you know, we want to raise up an army and send it into China and force them to become drug addicts. They need to come up with a real nice, wonderful, beautiful, cautious bellio. We're here to spread the Christian faith. We're here to protect missionaries. We're, we're here to do something good. You know, when they want to go into South Africa, they don't say we're going to move into South Africa and kill a lot of Boer farmers and take their land because these Jewish diamond merchants want all the diamonds and gold. 
People don't want to get on board for that. They don't want to join Team Satan. Well, Politarsis thought that he was doing the right thing. He was adre- He was holding the conservative line, right? Uh-huh. Judaism. He didn't understand the ministry of Christ. He may not have been in Judea during the ministry of Christ, except perhaps for the feasts. But, you know, just because he was in Judea at the Passovers, when Christ was in Judea, in Jerusalem, at the Passovers, or, or at the Feast of Tabernacles, or, or at the Feast of Pentecost, the three times a year that the children of, of Israel are commanded to be in the temple, and they all migrated from, from wherever they were in Mesopotamia, they all went to Jerusalem, to, to the temple, Mesopotamia, Palestine, the Roman world, that they all went to Jerusalem to the temple three times a year. There were millions of people in Jerusalem at those three times each year. And um, it, it, it's very possible. I mean, if you go to Times Square on, on New Year's Eve, that doesn't mean that you're going to see some notable person that's there every year on New Year's Eve with millions of people there. It's, it's, it's a great crowd, and, and Christ certainly had a notable number of followers. That doesn't mean Paul of Tarsus really knew of his ministry and, 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 or anything of substance about it. He may have heard of this Jesus of Nazareth. Well, we don't know. Well, we, there's no record. That there's no record of Paul's activity in Jerusalem before the stoning of, Steve, of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. That's where Paul of Tarsus is introduced. Now, now, later on in Acts, it's very clear that Paul still has close connections to his, to his um, hometown of Tarsus, which is far to the north in Anatolia, right? And Paul, in, from Acts chapter 7, sees this upstart sect of, of um, the sect of the Nazarenes, as they're called at the time. They're not called Christians at the time. And he sees it as an upstart sect. And he being educated in Jerusalem in in Judaism and being um, a a notable young man in, in his education, he's going to defend the conservative line. He, not understanding the true nature of, of Christ and, and the, um, the reasons for his ministry. He's going to defend the conservative line amongst, the, amongst those Judeans practicing Judaism. So he takes an active role in that. He thought he was doing the right thing. Absolutely. He, he didn't see it as... as um, humanizing his brethren, he, he saw it as um, punishing people who were perverting Judaism, what, which, which the, 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 um, the temple authorities in Jerusalem evidently had the authority to do at the time. So, so Douglas's view of Paul of Tarsus's actions is taken entirely out of, out of context. And then it's extrapolated into a novel. Well, it's purposely taken out of context. They have to be intelligent enough to know better. Well, well, okay, Paul of Tarsus's actions in Judea, from the time of the stoning of, of, of Stephen to the time of, um, uh, of his conversion on the road to Damascus, 
may well have been equated to the actions of, of um, a Klansman in the 1960s trying to suppress the, the um, Negro civil rights movement. Uh, and, and I'm saying that because amongst conservative Judeans who did not understand the ministry of Christ in Judea in, in the first century AD, who, who didn't know enough about it to make a valid decision based on scripture to join it, right? Amongst those conservative Judeans, whether or not they were followers of the Pharisees in, in the temple, right? Amongst those conservative Judeans, the sect of the Nazarenes would have been seen as an upstart sect, just like the radical Bolsheviks on the streets of, in the 50s and 60s were seen as upstarts, right? Now, now, of course, the radical Bolsheviks were wrong, and the sect of the Nazarenes were right, but if you look at the political perspective and, 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 the cons and, and think like a conservative and, and put yourself in the shoes of a conservative at the time, yet Paul of Tarsus would have thought that he was acting to conserve, to conserve Judaism as he knew it. Now, now his zeal was misplaced, and, and the event on the road to Damascus, of course, made him realize that his zeal was misplaced. And once he was converted to the sect of the Nazarenes, once he understood that Jesus Christ was God come in the flesh, and, and once he understood how, how that had, um, had, had been the fulfillment of so many Old Testament prophecies, then his zeal was focused correctly on behalf of Christ, on the right side of the argument, and he put just as much effort into that. So, so we could all be wrong on behalf of our, uh, of our national status quo, and just like those cops in Boston, we being, um, being Christians and, and being truly patriotic, look at those cops in Boston. We know that they're tyrants. We know what they did wasn't right. Well, we know that those actions by the government are, are um, actually contrary to the principles that this republic was founded on. We know that, but they don't understand that. They as individuals don't understand that because they're not educated to understand that. Paul got his education on the road to Damascus, and he suddenly understood. But he was standing up for the status quo. He was standing up for the conservative whole, you know, Judaism as he knew it, and he thought he was doing the right thing. That's how to look at that in perspective. That's the way that should be, should be understood. Absolutely. Well, these people hate Paul, so they're going to use anything, anything seemingly legitimate or legitimate. Well, well, right. Well, well, Douglas is labeling is portraying Paul as the radical Bolshevik. Paul's not a radical Bolshevik. He, he's the conservative holding the line. It's the other way around. It's the opposite from the way Clayton Douglas is portraying. Right. Paul perceives the people he's going after to be the radicals. Yes, he does. Now, now we, we understand that his perception was wrong, but he didn't understand that his perception was wrong. Right, and when he did, he changed. Yes, he did. He changed immediately. Clay Douglas states, 
How does Jesus Christ interrupting Paul's trip to go massacre Emmanuel's followers make Saul Paul a super prophet? Let's get down to brass tacks. Paul Saul is not disguising the fact that he's a predator. So he's gone from Bolshevik to predator. Let's return to our opening scriptural passage. But granting that myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Saul of Tarsus, 2 Corinthians 12:16. Okay, okay. Many of you are prepared to counter that the translation is wrong, and that's not what Saul Paul meant, so let's move on. Well, so in other words, because many of you are ready to point out that the translation is wrong, let's just move on. Well, well right, this was totally dishonest. It was a totally dishonest move by Douglas, and this is this is a perfect example of 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 why I say that Paul bashing it is you know the Paul bashers many of the Paul bashers will, will love to point out all those mistranslations in the Gospels and the Old Testament, and when it comes to Paul, that they basically take it for granted that the translations are okay. Well. I, they should follow them. Uh, I've seen it time and again with the Paul Bashers, right? He's interpreting your. Oh, I mean, he's he's predicting your next move that you're going to go after the um, the translation and the interpretation because they understand the translation is wrong. So if the emperor is wearing no clothes, and he says, most of you are probably going to point out that the emperor is not wearing any clothes. So let's just move along. Well, well, of, well course of, of course you're going to point it out. It's an issue of fact. Exactly, and the, the issue that this translation being wrong is it is certainly an issue of fact. But first, Paul never claimed himself to be a super prophet. That, that's ridiculous. That that's a Jewish tactic, right? Uh, oh, Adolf Hitler claimed um, that, that 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 Germany should be a race of blonde-haired, blue-eyed supermen, right? Well, you know, no. today we rule Germany, tomorrow the world. And I've read a lot of his speeches, listened to a lot of them, and I've never heard those words or read those words in any of them. Well, well, right. So this is another typical Jew move to, to attribute to, to somebody words that they never said as if they're fact. E- Eli James has done it to me a bunch of times. So Paul's a super prophet. You're an exterminationist. The, the right, absolutely. On, uh, there's no end in sight. First, Paul never—he never claimed to be a super prophet, and a study of 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 his epistles reveals that Paul surely was a prophet. I mean, there there are examples of um, his prophetic ability in his epistles, which are which should be beyond dispute. I mean, when when Paul told the Romans. And off the top of my head, I would say that the, the epistle to the Romans was probably written about 46, 48 A.D. When, when Paul told the Romans that God would crush Satan under their feet shortly, he, he was certainly indicating that the Romans would destroy the Edomite Jews at Jerusalem, and, and they did so 12 years later. Uh, I mean, it's pretty clear to me, uh, and, and um, that, that's exactly what happened. Well, Paul foresaw that. And um, I don't, I don't know how else that could be applied. There's no other way that could be applied, because he was definitely referring to those people that the adversaries of Christ in Jerusalem. So, so I mean, Paul. There are examples of Paul's prophetic ability in his epistles, but he never termed himself a prophet, and certainly not a super prophet. That's ridiculous. After Paul's experience on the road to Damascus. 
a much longer phase in Paul's conversion began. And this is elucidated by Paul in Galatians chapter 1, which included the reading and revelation of Scripture. And that phase took three years to complete. And Douglas's version of the story of Paul omits these facts, and then he starts adding his own fictions, right? But But this is, you know, Paul said, that after his conversion on the road to Damascus, he didn't go to Jerusalem or, or anywhere, but he went to the desert, he went to Arabia, and then he returned to Damascus. He studied the scripture for three years to make certain that, that, um, that, that he knew how that these prophecies in the scripture were fulfilled in Christ. And that's why he did that. He was like, wow, Jesus Christ is God. I better go study my Bible. That, that's basically the conclusion he came to when he did, it took three years to do that. Now, now Douglas quotes, I, I don't know what version of 2 Corinthians 12, 16 Douglas is quoting here. I, I never really looked it up. It, it, um, but, but he admits that the, this translation may be questioned and, and says, like you, like you explained, well, let's move along. Move along, son. Don't worry about it. You know I mean? But move along, children. Right, so it's like a pickpocket. I'm sure you're going to point out that I've just taken your wallet, so let's just move along. Yeah, yeah right. So what happened to, to um, Douglas's own appeal for more dialogue on this important topic and, and let us reason together that, that he, had, he had just given at the beginning of this article? You know, if he wants to let us reason together, he won't um, move along those people that want to talk about this translation of 2 Corinthians 12, 16. He's a fraud. He, he uses a bad translation to get his point across, and, and when its veracity is questioned, he just wants to quickly move on rather than discuss it or, or consider a differing opinion. So, so his own writing shows that he's a, he, he's a fraud. Now, I want to talk about this that this translation of 2 Corinthians 12:16 that the um the King James version has it and I and I quote but be it so I did not burden you nevertheless being crafty I caught you with guile and, and this is not a good translation either that the word nevertheless is an adverb in, in English, right? Here it was translated from the Greek word Allah. It's um, Strong's number 235. Well, Bill, I wonder, could Douglas tell us the difference between a noun and an adverb? No, he couldn't. He, he couldn't. There's no way. But he could probably tell you the difference, he could tell you the difference between hashish and cannabis. Or... He, he might be able to tell you the difference between Panama red and Hawaiian <laughs> Or what I, I mean, that Tijuana brass? I, I don't know. <laughs> it, it's um, Allah, according to Liddell and Scott's Greek English lexicon, is a conjunction, and it it can mean otherwise or it could mean but to oppose single clauses. Oh, okay, but and and the preceding clause being negative. And um, when I did my own translation of 2 Corinthians, and this still stands in the Christogonian New Testament, I translated 2 Corinthians in early 2001, and I translated this verse. But it is that I have not imposed on you 
Otherwise, that's that word, Allah, it's not nevertheless. Nevertheless is an adverb, right? This is a conjunction. Otherwise, and it's a conjunction which negates the, the negative, it negates the negative clause which precedes it, right? Otherwise, being villainous, I have taken you with guile. And and I would stand by that translation today as being perfectly literal, a perfectly literal word-for-word rendering of the Greek. In context, and, and in context, that means reading from the beginning of the paragraph and interpreting that against all that precedes in, in Paul's relationship with the Corinthians, right? Paul is telling the Corinthians that he never imposed on them for anything. And he explained that in the prior chapter. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he explained that, right? So, so if we read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and then look at 2 Corinthians 12, 16, it, it, the translation in the Christogenian New Testament is perfectly understandable. And if he had done so, if he had imposed on them, then he would have been as a villain having taken the Corinthians with guile. So, so Paul is not, as Douglas, Douglas suggests, inferring that he deceived anyone, nor was he predacious in any way. He was not being a predator. He is telling the Corinthians just the opposite, that he was not a predator, that he had not imposed on them. He's telling them that if he had been a predator, then he had deceived them. That's what he tell. But he wasn't imposing on them. Therefore, he did not deceive them. Well, Douglas would just counter if you pointed this out that this is all part of the deception. Yeah, yeah, and that's about when I would punch him in the nose. <laughs> I mean, that's his scholarly answer. You you go through all this work pointing it out, and he says, "Well, Paul's just lying. This is just more of the deception. He's preying on them." And, he, and he, he'd say, what kind of man has to tell you, I am not deceiving you? Oh, the only person that would tell you, I am not deceiving you, I am not a predator, is one who's preying on you and deceiving you. Reference well, oh, no, no, Clay Douglas also states that Paul claims that he, um, not Christ, had begotten you. He, he beseeches you to be his followers and his imitators. And that, that, that's not, there's no really fault with Paul in that statement. And Douglas, that's because Douglas there leaves out half of what Paul said, right? Well, that's Paul, like reading one sentence but not reading the next verse. Well, well right, like um, certain clowns do with Isaiah chapter 13. Paul said, become imitators of me. Yes, he did say that. And then he says, just as also I am of Christ. That, that's 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Paul lives piously and justly among the Corinthians, and what was there setting an example where Yahshua Christ was not, right? He, he right. wasn't there personally. So, so the only predator here would be and that the only person who would corrupt Christians with guile here is Clay Douglas, uh, attempting to slander Paul, and, and he'll stop at nothing. You know, Paul was there with the Corinthians and, and, and believed himself to be um, living in imitation of Christ and, and was extolling the Corinthians to do that same thing. There, there's nothing wrong with that. So when Douglas is quoting Paul, he just stops and says, be imitators of me. 
Right. And forgets about that portion, just as I am of Christ. That's very treacherous. It seems that he's the predator. He's preying on people and kinding on their ignorance that they're not going to go crack open a Bible and read that and say, well, gee, they, they cut off the, the last half of the sentence. Well, well, that's the nature of, of, of false um, pastors, false Christians, false leaders, false uh, all the, the Judeo-Christians do the same thing. That the um, and, and everyone who uses scripture to their own agenda play on the ignorance of their audience. Now, you could say anything about the Bible, and, and if you're saying it to a group of people who never read the book, well, well you're going to get away with it. Uh, I've seen it time and again. Reference 55a, Clay Douglas states, here's what Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live yet. I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 Even the most dedicated, even the most devoted Paul followers will detect a whiff of a bad odor here. Saul Paul is narcissistic. He claims to have been crucified with Christ, and let us try to be fair, perhaps he meant spiritually, but it's the next line that is spellbinding. Nevertheless, I live. In other words, Paul celebrates that he is not, that it is he, not Emmanuel, who lives. He is chortling, as they say. Paul chortles further. Paul states, he gave himself for me. And this is the same individual who said that Jesus was lost to us for all time and is dead. Well, well, right. And, and right, exactly. Douglas is being hypocritical. And, and here Paul makes an important analogy, which Douglas has perverted with his own misunderstanding. And it's so typical of the, the deceit of Paul Bashers. Sin is violation for law. Sin is violation of the law. The penalty for sin is death when reparation cannot be made. All, the, all of the laws in, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, if reparation can't be made, such as you killing another man, such as you raping somebody's um, wife, the, the penalty is death. You laying with, with a beast or, a, or another man, you can't pay, pay back Right. And, out of the community for those things, and, and the penalty is death. That the um, the wages of sin and, is death. Since the entire nation of the Israelites sinned and cannot possibly make reparation for their errors because their sins are, are fornication and idolatry and things like that, that the entire nation is condemned by the law. The penalty for adultery, which, which is what the children of Israel committed, being the wife of God being the wife of Yahweh, the penalty for adultery alone is death. And every one of our Israelite ancestors is guilty of this, that the worship of false gods, that the committing of adultery against Yahweh, their God, the husband of the nation. That that is the story told in the entire prophecy of the prophet Hosea. That that is how the prophet, that, that's the analogy that the prophet Hosea makes. We also find that analogy in Isaiah and, and in other of the prophets. 
We have all broken the vows which our fathers took long ago to which we also are bound by ancient tradition, if in fact you're a descendant of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is independent of any sin which each of us have committed personally. And, and who among us can claim not to have sinned at all? And, and, and as James says, he who violates one, um, what, one law is guilty of the whole law, right? Is liable to the whole law. Under the old covenant, rather than a man confessing his sins and condemning himself, an animal was sacrificed at the altar in his place as atonement for sin. That's described in, 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 uh, and explained in Leviticus chapter 4. Yet this was only symbolic. As Paul explains in Hebrews chapter 10, looking forward to the day when Yahweh himself would make reparations for the sins of the children of Israel. Because all Israel is sinned, all Israel is condemned by the law. Yet, Yahshua Christ redeemed. Yahshua Christ made reparations for each and every one of the children of Israel without exception. So Paul says of Yahshua that he gave himself for me. Yet you know that Yahweh being the husband of the children of Israel and Israel being guilty under penalty of death under the law, the only way that Yahweh could relieve Israel of the penalty of death and still keep his word was to come as a man and die so that Israel would no longer be under the judgments of the law, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 7, that when the husband dies, the wife is released from the law. Yahweh died. Yahweh came as a man and died so that the children of Israel could live. That's what Paul's explaining. That is what we find in the prophets in Daniel chapter 9, for instance, and in many places concerning Israel's relationship to God under the law. That's the promise in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, that a new covenant would be made, that Israel would always be a nation, in other words, that the children of Israel wouldn't be judged by the law and, and be put to death. Because if we were judged by the law, which we were bound to, we would have to be put to death as punishment for our sin. So Yahweh himself chose to die for us so that we as a nation would not be exterminated as but a judge for our Doug, sin, for, for our violation of the law. Douglas thinks Christ is lost to us for all time now because he died, because this article is written by a materialist Sadducee. The, the, the article is written by a material Sadducee, materialist Sadducee, and it's probably written by a Jew, and one who doesn't understand the relationship of Israel to God under the law, and, and how God relieved Israel of that relationship, uh, of that obligation, because under that obligation, Israel had to die. No Jew could understand that. No Jew can understand that. So God died instead to release Israel from the law. That's how Christ redeemed the children of Israel. So Paul says of Yahshua that he gave himself for me. For Paul, right. For Paul and every other Israelite. 
and he is wholly correct in his assessment. Every, each and every white Adamic man on the face of the earth today should have this understanding. Where Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, each and every one of us should understand that Christ substituted himself in our condemnation. That was what our God did for us in order to um, relieve us of the responsibility that we broke, of the obligations that we violated, which make us liable to death under his law. Then Paul says, nevertheless, I live, because except for the will of God, it is each of us who should have suffered that penalty. Paul explains all of this in Romans chapters 3 through 7. And, and, and the, the explanation is difficult to understand, but it is perfectly in harmony with the words of Christ and with the words of the prophets. Then Paul says, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And this Douglas also fails to comprehend. So he scoffs even further, and we'll address that at length later in this presentation after we see the rest of Douglas's comments on that matter. But, but there's, you know, Christ lives in me, that that's the, the, the anointing we, which we have, which the Apostle John, that, that's a quote from the Apostle John, the anointing which we have, that that should live in us. It, it should be the understanding of the will and the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And, and the fact that what we should live um, for him because he, he sacrificed, made that sacrifice for us. Christians should realize the sacrifice and, and the love which God has for the children of Israel. And when I say Christians, I mean only the children of Israel because only they can truly be Christians. What we should have that understanding and, and seek to... to um, live for Christ because Christ made that sacrifice for us. That's what Paul is saying. And there's no fault in it whatsoever from the law or the prophets or from the words of Christ. Absolutely. 55b. Douglas states, I want you to ponder that one statement for a moment. Remember that Emmanuel's life was made miserable by his archenemy Saul of Tarsus the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's the Pharisee of the Pharisees. I thought he was a Roman soldier and a deserter. That was last week. Okay. So he was wearing two hats, just like um, Judah, Icariot, there's Saul and Paul. Saul was the deserter, Paul <laughs> was the Pharisee. It's a Jekyll and Hyde routine. Paul Saul had stalked Emmanuel and his followers for years upon years, trying to set up Jesus Christ. Saul wanted desperately to kill Jesus Christ. It was his one purpose in life. Saul wanted to shut him down. Ultimately, Paul and his Pharisee gangsters satisfied that mission. Christ was hideously butchered by the hidden hands of the Pharisees who hated him so. But Paul does not want you to remember that. He would much rather have you think that Christ's death is a celebration and that Christ died for Paul. Perhaps there is a kernel of Freudian truth there. So now he's bringing Freud into this. I guess that's a step up from a magician. Well, well not really, because Freud, uh, I don't know if the magician would be more entertaining than Freud. 
Douglas wants us to remember nothing factual, only the novel which he has been concocting since the beginning of the article. It, it's it's incredible how, how um I, I don't know it, it it's like some Jew wrote this for Douglas, knowing it's going to make Douglas look like an idiot. I I, I don't know. I don't get it. I, I don't understand it. I, I don't know how how somebody could um contrive so many lies in 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 such an exposition. There is not one bit of evidence that Paul had anything to do with the crucifixion of Christ. Not one. Not one shred of documentary evidence. Or that Paul was even at Palestine, that there's no evidence. It, it's ostensible that Paul was in Palestine, Palestine for the three feasts every year, right? But there's no evidence, that there's no documentary proof that Paul was even in Palestine at any time during Christ's three-and-a-half-year ministry. Never mind his being a leader in Judea. And and Paul's actually described as a young man in, in um in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter seven, Acts chapter eight, the stoning of Stephen, what where it says that Paul watched the clothing of those who stoned Stephen. That that's because in, in um in the ancient world, clothing was what was dear. It was expensive, and you didn't get it soiled doing work, right? But which is why at the Last Supper, Christ washes the feet of the, of the apostles. The apostle John describes him as, uh, describes him as having taken off his clothing, right, and, and laid it aside, and he girded himself with a towel. He put a towel around his waist. What well, well, um, that would also explain why they cast lots for his clothing. They wanted his clothes. Well, well, right. Clothing, clothing was expensive. It, it was expensive. I mean, today, if, if they're getting ready to do an execution, you don't see prison guards standing in line saying, I want his shirt, I want his pants. No, because no, you can buy it all for three bucks at Walmart because it's made in China and it's cheap, right? It, it, it's, um, clothing was dear at that time. Robes and cloaks. If a man had two cloaks, it was a big thing, right? It, it was... Um, you laid it aside when you did any, any work because you wouldn't soil your clothing, right? Even the Greeks, they worked out in, in, in the gymnasiums and they were naked, right? And that was typical. Men worked outside. Men had, in all of the ancient art, from the Phoenicians, Greeks, and Romans, men had deep tans and women were descriptive as depicted as very white-skinned because women spent very little time out in the sun and, and men worked outside naked. Right, and women wouldn't be outside working in the field. No. And, and they sure as hell wouldn't be naked. What women wouldn't be tan in, in the ancient world. The, the um, it, It's quite unlikely that Paul was a leader among the Pharisees during the time of Christ's ministry. He's depicted as a, a neonace, a, a young man in the book of Acts. And and we had a, um, you know, a patriarchal society where which was ruled by elders and, and young men did not have leading roles in, in that society. But when Paul later on, uh, I mean, over the next two years from the time of the stoning of Stephen, 
during that time, Paul was um, going to Damascus and arresting Christians and doing things like that and bringing them back to Jerusalem. But he did so un- under the auspices of the, the elders and the leaders of the temple. He didn't do that on his own volition. It's also evident that before Paul's conversion, it wasn't the Pharisees who were the leading persecutors of Christians. It was the Sadducees who were the leading persecution, persecutors of Christians. That's documented. That's documented in Acts chapter 4, verse 1, and in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Now, now the Pharisees were doing so also. However, the Sadducees were the high priests. The Sadducees, and that's documented in those same places in Acts, the Sadducees were the high priests that persecuted and who crucified Christ, not the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And that's also attested to that Sadducees were the high priests at the time by Flavius Josephus. Now again, we see that Douglas has, as usual, no sources for any of his statements. He invented this, the entire story himself, and, and he refers to Freudian truth, and, and he shows himself again to be a follower of Antichrist miscreants. He, he has no citations. Where are the citations for any of this? For any of Douglas's um, accusations of politarsis, he, he never has citations. Well, Phil, you're making the mistake of assuming that a novel filled with slanders and fabrications and false accusa- accusations needs a citation. He, he, he doesn't need it. It's a novel. Well, well absolutely. You don't, you don't cite sources in a comic book. And, and we're going to continue this novel next week. All right. Is it going... Think, ha, have we um, heard it all? Have we seen it all? Douglas says you know, thought you... We really haven't quite heard it all yet. It, 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 there are some, some spots over the next couple of weeks where, where, where it gets more incredible, but that these points have to be addressed. Every point here has to be addressed. And there's a, there's a, a um, over the next couple of weeks, I'll be listening to, to this. Um, I was advised by a listener to um, go check out a certain podcast and listen to this Scott McQuaid character and his Paul bashing, and, and I'm going to do that over the next few weeks. Right. But this gives us the opportunity to discuss the ministry of Paul of Tarsus from, from a perspective that, that I usually wouldn't discuss it from, and, and it gives us the opportunity to elucidate a lot of things that may not get discussed even if I did a presentation of um, uh, of Paul of Tarsus. So, and I will be doing a, a, a deep analysis of, of the letters of Paul of Tarsus probably um, soon after I finish my Acts presentation. And there'll be a lot of discussion of the ministry of Paul during my Acts presentation over the coming months on my Friday night program. So, so I'll be talking about Paul for the next year, probably. But it has to be done. It, it has to be done because Paul, it, 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 um, the record on Paul of Tarsus has to be corrected. I, I went through Paul's epistles with Eli James, and they were rushed, and, and they were... Um, that there were a lot of distractions with um, certain heresies, and um, it, it would be blood on the mercy seat. Yeah, yeah, all the garbage that that um, Eli James likes to throw into the sink. It, it's um, 
I'll be doing a sorrow um, exegesis of Paul's epistles after I present the book of Acts, what, which is probably going to take me the next couple of months. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, that too is an in-depth book, right? So, so um, I, look forward, I look forward to presenting Paul again and doing it a lot more in-depth than, than I had done it with Eli. All right. Thank you for joining me, and praise Yahweh, and I'll see you here next week. Absolutely, praise Yahweh, and we've barely begun to delve into the depth of this novel. It, it just gets better from here, right, Bill? Absolutely. Yahweh bless. Yahweh bless.